morning. So uh, I haven't been well the last couple of days, and so my voice will sound like it. I'm not in pain, um, so don't worry about that. Um, I mean, I'm a little bit in pain. It's, it's mostly emotional, but... But, um, you know, I think it was just, I think, I think my grandkids just wore us out. I think they were for a week and a half. I forget, I forget how difficult it is being a young parent of little kids. Because when grandkids come, I don't know how it is at your house, but this is how it was ours. When the family comes, it's like the parents say, you can deal with them for the next <laughs> week and a half. I don't, I don't have to deal with it. And so we're running around, you know, constantly doing all that kind of stuff. And so, um, so this, this, <clears throat> this morning I'm going to, this, I talked about this last week. This is the series that I'm doing and, uh, really to look at all the stuff that, that makes us who we are and, uh, and how to process some of this stuff. Th- this morning I'm going to go over Moses, some of the stuff with Moses. It's going to be, it's going to be a lot more definitive that it's going to be the next few weeks. In other words, I'm going to give specific things. This is, this is stuff, this is very specific stuff that contributed to who Moses was. But with still some open-ended things that you're going to have to process yourself. But over the next couple of weeks, it's going to be much more opaque. We're not going to, I'm not going to go over the details of what makes them what they are. We're just going to look at who they are. And, and then we're going to try to ask some questions. Why? Why did they think this way? Why did they say this stuff? Why did they do this stuff? And, uh, and so my desire for us is over these next few weeks to really let the Holy Spirit work on some things and let us, help us to process, God, why, what makes me me? Now, this is not all bad stuff, okay? It's not, I'm not trying to just illuminate bad stuff, but, but hopefully through the process that will happen and we can deal with some things. Uh, but really to look at filters. Filters in your life are, are all kinds of stuff, good stuff, bad stuff, and it contributes to good stuff, bad stuff. There is, there's millions and millions of things, micro things that, that contribute to who you are uh, along the way. We're going to process some of that bigger picture stuff. Uh, there's no way I could ever analyze all the things uh, with you and for you that make you you. Even if you spent you know, years in counseling, you're not going to be able to, to, to process all of that. But you can process who you are uh, on a much quicker level, and you can process where are you where are you trying to get to, who are you, what's going on, what are the things that need to change. I, I really think that a lot of times we spend time and energy processing who we are, but then we don't really come up with a plan of how to do anything about that. We we know that this, and then we blame it on stuff, right? I've seen this culturally blamed. You know, I, I I'm a drunk because I'm Irish. Like that has anything to do with anything. We do that stuff. Right, I had a Lynn and I had a friend of ours that was um, female, Latin, and she said, uh, "I am Latin woman. This is why I." Say, and it was because she would get angry and boisterous. Right, that's not that's not an excuse for something that may have contributed to it. There's no doubt about that, but there's no excuse for saying I'm I do wrong things. But this is just the reason why. Like, there's never going to be an option to change that. Because of whatever reasoning. Um, well, I'm, I'm just a guy. This is the way guys are. Well, it's not, a, it's not an excuse. I mean, sometimes it is, but I'll let you know. <clears throat> I'll let you know which ones. 
But there, there's a lot of stuff that make us us, right? And so we're going to try to process some of this. And my goal is that you will really, to really process some things and ask yourself. When I'm, when I'm asking some of these questions, as you ask yourself these questions, what conclusions can you come up with that will really help you uh, with this? And so there's some basic things I'm not going to scripturally go over. Hopefully, I've established this so much over time. And, and if not, then you can go look those up. But but here's some things that we need to kind of take as just a foundation that we kind of all have to be on the same page with, okay? That God did create us in his image, right? That, that has to be a starting point. If that's not a starting point for you, you really need to go there because the, the reason you are who you are foundationally in the beginning mentality, like your personality, the, the big pictures, as I mentioned last week, there's DNA and there's environment that, that determine who you are, but I also believe there's choices, well, the big picture is, is God is sovereign, and he, he gave you your personality. He made you in his image. And I believe that that is predominantly emotionally, mentally, and, and um, spiritually, it's, and physically is, is the least uh, most way that God made you in his image. All right? In other words, I don't think God has like two arms, two legs, and exactly the same. Is, and I don't know what that means, so don't ask me more about that. I just don't think it's as physical as it is all the other things. Okay, so God made you in his image. We have to start with that. Um, we, we have to start with the fact that God, God designed you to walk and talk with him, that he designed you to live for him. He designed you this way. We are, this is what Paul said. This is the only time the concept of predestination ever is in scripture, by the way, is that he predestined you to know Jesus. Okay, he predestined you to know him. He, he put he put this, this thing within you that is, that is a, a, a knowledge that he is there and a searching for him. And he wants to talk with you. He wants to interact with you. He wants you to walk with him. That we have, to, we have to start with that. Again, if you're saying, well, I don't know how true that is, you need, you need to go there in your relationship with God. If you don't have an assumption, and, I, and by the way, I don't think this is as strong as it should be all through the, the body of Christ. But if you don't have an assumption that God wants to talk to you, speak to you regularly, you need to get into Scripture because that is what Scripture shows us. He wants to interact with you. Okay, another thing is that we're designed to be like him. That he has designed us to, to, to be more like him every single day if we allow the Holy Spirit to take us there. Now, the reality is, is our brokenness as sinners uh, leads us uh, toward looking more like Satan, too. We, we, this is a choice. We can either look more like Satan every day or we can look more like God every day. And we have to choose, all right? So then <clears throat> the next one, I think, is that God has designed us to be whole and healthy. And this is where the brokenness of what sin does really uh, illuminates us fairly quickly, is that, that um, none of us in this room are completely whole or completely healthy. Knowing that, Looking in the mirror should, should push you toward realizing I'm a broken person. I am not exactly what God designed me to be. I'm not fulfilling that. And, you, at the, and I'm not saying there's a, there's a failure aspect there. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying as broken sinners, we are not as much like God as we could be. So that should be the objective. Lord, help me to be more like you and less like me. This is why John said that I decrease so that the Lord may increase. So if we know that, if we know that God has designed us to be whole and healthy, and we know that we're not, then let's analyze the places that we're not. Let's go down some roads and really process some stuff so we can say, God, I, I, can, I can do this way better than I'm doing. 
I can do life, I can do relationships, I can do um, spiritual health, mental health, I can do all this stuff much better than I'm doing. But I need some help, and that's a given. We have to have some help with this, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in, that's where God's Word comes in, that's where other people come in, and we're going to walk over all of that over the next few weeks. So, and, and here's another thing. Don't, don't just say sin, <clears throat> the brokenness of humanity or sin disqualifies me from moving forward. That, that's kind of a cop-out, but that's, that's where I was saying, well, we have excuses. You know, I'm, I'm Irish, so I'm just going to get drunk all the time. That, the, we allow ourselves sometimes to say, well, I'm so broken. This is just the way I am. There's no hope for me. Now, I have actually heard people over the years say that out loud um, uh, intentionally. But I see a whole lot more people that act that way that wouldn't ever say it out loud, but they act like I'm never going to be fixed. It's not possible, so why try? Uh, that's not okay. I see that the most when it comes to marriage relationships. Well, I'm just so messed up. I'm so broken. I'll never be able to be better. Or we point to the other person and say that. They are so messed up. They, are, they will never be good for me. So, <clears throat> so that's, guys, that's a cop-out, okay? That's a, this, this is what I've said before about the difference between the way the world thinks about something and the difference the way God or Scripture thinks about this. I strongly believe the world context that says, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, except for one ingredient, and that is the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the world setting, yes, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And that, that you can go that with all kinds of addictions. But if, if that were true after the Holy Spirit has the ability to work on us, then how big is the Holy Spirit? Right? Somewhere, somewhere, the Holy Spirit has to be bigger than alcoholism. You following me? Drug addiction or anything else. And so, yes, I believe that humanity is so broken that that's always going to be. Except the Holy Spirit wants to transform us, completely change us. And that's where we have to be willing to say, okay, Lord, then I have to figure out the what. Once I figure out the what, and, and figuring out the what is, is difficult. In other words, what causes this, or what is this? What, why do I do that? That's the next question. What I do is one question. And we, you have to dig in there a little bit to get to that. Um, you know, this is a problem I have. What? What is the problem? Once you get to the what, then you have to start asking yourself, why do I think that way? Why do I act like that? Why is that happening? Why have I always had that feeling or that um, pre-supposed pre, uh, uh, idea or whatever? Why? When you can start getting to the why, you can actually start getting the problems fixed. If all you ever do is analyze the what, in other words, um, I, I have a problem with anger. Okay, Join all the other people on the planet that have a problem with anger. That's not, the, that's not the, 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 the breakthrough moment. The breakthrough moment is, why do I have that so that I can change that? All right, and that's where we have to get to. We're going to try to get through with this. So <clears throat> what makes me me? Why do I think certain ways about whatever? Now, there, you have to analyze this. And by the way, this isn't, I'm not trying to get you to think a certain way. Now, some of the things I say I can't help because I do think something, it, it will come out, but that's not my goal. My goal is not to say, this is the way you need to think about this. What I'm trying to do is, what do you think about this issue? And then once you say what, and, it, and it's going to be multi-layers and not like a one thing, multi-layers, then you need to start asking yourself, 
do some of these kind of peak a little bit? And I'll help you process that with passion and things. If, then why do I think that? So what do I think about people? What do I think about people? It determines so much in, in everything of life. What do I think about people? And you can say, to, to make it that broad is not healthy for anybody, okay? Because you don't really think about people. You, basically, you can have two answers. What do I think about people? Well, I like them, I don't like them. That's pretty much what you're going to come up. That's not, you're not going anywhere with that. I joke about the fact that I don't like people, which is not true. I just don't like most people. Um, it's not true. I really like people, but I don't like certain things that, that are consistent with humanity um, as a pastor that is difficult for me to deal with as a pastor, right? And so I joke about those things. But when I say, what do you think about people? You need to break that down. What do you think about different people groups? This, this has been a big hot uh, button issue in our country right now. And, and I'm very strongly against the mentality of systemic racism, okay? I don't think it exists. I think that is a lie that people are telling other people and spreading throughout our society to get people at each other. To get, it's trying to cause dissension. It is not true dissension. It's trying to cause it, okay? And there are plenty of people out there, if you'll just find the right places, plenty of people of every kind of people group, every ethnicity, everything, that are saying, this is a joke. Don't buy into it, okay? But, but I do know that, that, that every one of us, we have um, biases and prejudices and all kinds of stuff that go on. That's normal. That In fact, there's, not, there's no way as a human you can't have that kind of stuff because of all the filters, all the things that happen. Um, I was watching a show yesterday, and um, uh, through the process of the, the, um, the plot coming out through the show, one of the things that became strong through this show is that um, people that are wealthy are bad. Okay? That's a bias. That's a prejudice. I think it's an unhealthy one, by the way. Um, a few weeks ago, three weeks ago, whatever it is, I saw some of, there was two or three different uh, interviews with Elon Musk, if you guys were paying attention to some of those. Um, uh, Babylon B even had one, I think. That one caught me off guard. But, um, but the cool thing about the Babylon B one is they asked him if he was a Christian, if he'd like to accept Jesus. Did you, if, if you've seen that, it was really cool. Um, they also asked him if they knew who Carmen was, but that's irrelevant. So, um, <clears throat> but here was the thing, here's some of the things that I noticed through these interviews with Elon Musk is um, if you've got a lot of wealth, there's something wrong with you. You're, you're probably, you probably don't care about people if you have a lot of money. That, that was like ingrained in the, in the conversation, which is kind of irritating. Um, now, I, I like Elon Musk. I'm not like a huge fan, um, but I'm amazed at some of the things he's done. He's gotten wealthy because of the things that he's done. He had wealth to begin with, yes, but he's gotten wealthy for some of the things he's done. He's putting rockets into space when NASA quit doing that. NASA started making their mission and their motive um, gender, I mean, uh, ethnic equality. You can go back and find the day when they said, this is who we are now. We're going to start doing all this stuff. And they stopped putting rockets into space. Why have NASA if they're not sending rockets? Right? That's what they're funded for. So Elon Musk said, well, I'm going to do that. 
And then everybody's talking about these EPA stuff, and so he said, okay, I'll make electric cars. I love Teslas, but I will never buy an electric car to save our planet. I don't believe that's an issue. Some people do. I believe that's a joke. So, so you balance these things out, but then he makes billions of dollars doing this stuff, and everybody picks on him. Okay, well then you send a rocket in space. I mean, do you, do you understand? I mean, I know this is very simplistic, but why do we think the things we do? Why do we think the things about people? Here's one, people from different countries. How do you feel about people from different countries? Think about this across the board. Are there some countries that you like the people from that country? Are there some countries that you don't like the people from that country? How do I think about people is the first question. Once you get some answers to that, then you need to start asking yourself, why? Why do I think that? I like people from this country. I don't like people. The first time this really caught me like blatantly from a non-American point of view, I was in China and the guy that was kind of like my partner with me in China was a, a brilliant, brilliant man. He had he had two different doctorates. He had been an engineer for all of his life, and then he decided to retire and become a, a medical doctor. So he went back to medical school in his 50s, became a medical doctor. So he got another doctorate. Right? So this is my this is my partner while we're in China. You know, I'm I'm talking about sports and he's talking about stuff that matters. And so <laughs> we go into this little shop one day to get some food little mom and pop shop. In case you don't know, let me give you some history. Because it, it, I knew the history, but it didn't click in my head. The area we were in was where the Japanese came in and completely decimated the Chinese, massacred the Chinese. This guy was Japanese. We're in China. I didn't think about that. Never crossed my mind. But in fact, I said, why don't we go down to this little shop and get some food? And the rest of our team was, was uh, sleeping, taking it easy. He and I were awake, so I said, okay, let's do it. And he said, I don't know if that's a good idea. I was like, why? It's no big deal. We go into this little mom and pop shop. When he walked in, everybody stopped. Everybody in the place stopped. It got as quiet as you can imagine. And they're all staring at him. And that's when I remembered history. The Japanese had murdered and pillaged and raped this whole area. I forgot. But here's the thing. When we were sitting up in our hotel room and he said, I don't think this is a good idea, he had remembered. How do you think about people? How do you think about people? And then the question is, why do you think that about people? How do you think about money? What do you think about money? Good, bad, happy, sad? I've never had anybody that has ever said, I wish I had less. I'm sure that exists, by the way, but I haven't met them yet. I wish I had less. Now, I have met people that said, I wish I had had less during this time frame, whatever that was. But I've never met anybody that says, I wish I had less. But I have met people that says, that uh, rich people bad. I've met people that say poor people bad. Um, I, the question is not 
what do we think, but it's why. Why do I think this is good or bad or whatever? I always find it interesting that some of the wealthiest people on the planet are the ones telling everybody else how bad wealthy people are. I've always been confused by that. I know I've used this example before, but it just, when everybody was talking about environmental, 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 if we just stopped all the people that were flying in their private jets all over the world to talk about how bad the environment is because of our private jets. <laughs> but the biggest one that got me is the day that Cheryl Crow said, we should all start using one square of toilet paper to save the planet. Now, let me ask this rationally. Is Cheryl Crow doing that? The answer, no. How do we think about money? How do we think about it, its effect? I, I've heard people quote for years, money is the root of all evil. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's neutral. Money has no spiritual attachment to it whatsoever. It's what you do and how your heart feels. How do you feel about money? What do you think about government? Think about this. I mean, it's, I'm fairly young still when it comes to the broad spectrum of America, but um, I, I remember you know, listening to, and, and I'm talking to my grandparents' generation, the, the, the um, Great Depression generation, how they perceive jobs and money and stuff. It's very different than the way people perceive it now. And how much the government has a say in these kind of things, right? I think this is a fact. I believe that it is a fact that can easily be proven, although I've met people that don't believe it. But I believe the, the biggest hindrance to us as a nation coming out of um, the Great Depression was FDR. He kept us in the Great Depression. And the only thing that really kept, that, that broke the back of the Depression totally was, was the war. That's really what, what kind of broke the back of that. And I'm not saying the war coming to America, I'm saying around the world beginning before we got into it. How do you perceive government? How do you perceive presidents, congressmen, senators? How do you per perceive local government? Th these, are, these are things that make us us. Right? What do you think about work? Just the idea of work. This is one of the things that has changed greatly in the last 20, 30 years. It's just the idea of work. Companies all over America are begging for people to come work for them. Begging people to come work for. And then the government makes it different. They spend the numbers. How many people, they don't, they're not saying how many people are unemployed right now. They're saying how many people are, are um, looking for unemployment, are, are in unemployment. In other words, a non-financial employed status. And there's always ways to spend this stuff. But unemployment is crazy right now because you're getting so much money from the government, you don't have to work. What the government gives you is better than minimum wage. You're not going to have people working then. I don't know how many geniuses it takes to figure this out. You're just not going to have people working under those circumstances. And the idea of a work ethic, just working, working hard, what does that mean? You, you guys understand, when you go to work, you're not working for that company or that boss primarily. 
Secondarily, you are. You're working for a paycheck. There's nothing wrong with saying that. But when people ask, you know, they're interviewing, why do you want to work for this company? To make money. That is the answer. Would you work for that company for free? Then it's not the culture. It's not the excitement. It's not the great boss and leadership. It's the paycheck. Now, two paychecks, similar paychecks. Why do you pick one company over that? Okay, that can be a different reason, right? To make money. That's why people go to work. But here's the thing that is, it seems to be escaping us more and more in our country is a work ethic comes directly from your relationship with God. Do you work because you are accountable to God for this? Or do you work only for a paycheck? When, when do you work because this is what a person of integrity does? You work hard because why? You're a moral person. You're a good person. You're a hardworking person regardless of whether they make you do that or not. Right? How do we look at work? How do we look at marriage? How do you look at marriage? How do you look at your spouse? How do, you, how do you look at them? Do you see them as lesser than you or greater than you? Neither one is healthy. I've had, I joke about, you know, this person married up or whatever the case is. I joke with people all the time. You know, it looks like you definitely married up. And sometimes it's true. But, um, but at the end of the day, guys, when you become one in Christ, when you become one in Christ, there should be an equality within that marriage. I don't see them better or less. I see them as my partner. I see them as the other half of me. I see them as, as, my, as God's gift to me. How do you see women? How do you see men? Men, how do you see women? These are, these are all aspects of who we are. And every single one of these affect how we look at people, life, relationships, God, all these other kind of things. Um. <clears throat> All these filters that are us, layers and layers and layers of stuff, you know, where you're born, how you're raised, what, what type of family, this is just one tiny little aspect, but did you have two parents in the house or just one? Uh, did you have no parents and you were raised by the system somehow? Um, what about siblings? Did you have siblings or not? That changes things, right? Um, for the most part, you guys would understand this, somebody that does not is not raised with siblings. They have different dynamic when they get to things like university and stuff like that. Once they get out on their own, how they interact with other people. And then how they interact when they get married. What about somebody that was raised with all boys or somebody that was raised with all girls? That changes the marriage dynamic. I've had too many marriage conversations about this. Um, somebody with raised lots of siblings or one sibling. That kind of, I mean, all these things are just filters. They're not good or bad. They're just filters. They, they, they help disseminate information to us. What does your family dynamics look like? Um, is your family a loud family, quiet family? I mean, these are all part of it. I, I've had people come to marriage counseling after they've been married six months, falling apart because their spouse raised their voice at them. Well, we never had anybody ever raise their voice in our entire lifetime. I'm like, Lynn and I raised our voice, I think the second time we dated. But, but, I mean, all these are filters, right? How do we process information? And then all of a sudden, something is changing that, and you're trying to process this. Okay, socioeconomic history of your life. Were you poor? Were you rich? Middle class? How do you define middle class? That's different all over the country. We're raised in the south, in the north. 
Those kind of stuff. For you guys that have been predominantly around here, let me, let me help you out. Um, if you go to church down in the South, people, like in ch- during church service, people are amen and shouting the whole time. Amen. Now, I grew up in that, and I don't prefer it. Because <laughs> here's the reason. When you... When you amen me, it stops what I'm saying. And I don't like to be stopped. I want to keep talking. But I have to adjust to that. I'm serious. When I go down south, all right, you guys grow up a little bit. All I'm doing is trying to help you. When I go down south, it is difficult. I have, to, I have to kind of gear myself up. They're going to be interrupting me the entire service. It happens. And the stuff I say is good, so I get interrupted a lot down south. All right, guys, here's the thing that we need to do. There's so many factors that make us us. Let's, let's let the Holy Spirit do some speaking to us, okay? Through these next few weeks, let's really let him get in and process some stuff. Um, the Holy Spirit... Is, is a comforter. He's a counselor. He can take you down roads if you're willing. But you've got to be willing. And that's the biggest thing is, why do I think certain things? Don't just say, well, that is what it is. Ask yourself, why? This is what I think, but why? This is what I like or dislike. So I'm going to go over some of that in just a second. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now we know where he is at this point, right? Um, how did he get to this point? This Years before, uh, about 50, 65 years, actually 60 years before this or so, he was uh, born. His mother put him in the river. They, uh, Pharaoh was upset because the Israelites were, were uh, gaining ground, reproducing fairly quickly. And so he said, let's kill all the boys um, two years and under, right? As they're being born, kill them. And he did that for two years. And uh, the midwives didn't cooperate real well. A lot of the boys were still born, but there was many of them that were killed in the process. Moses' mother put him in a little basket and, and pushed it out into the river so that Pharaoh's daughter would see it. I believe it was intentional. It doesn't say that in Scripture, but I think it was intentional. And then Pharaoh's daughter saw it, said, hey, let me raise this boy. And then uh, uh, Moses' mother, uh, sister jumps out of the bushes and says, hey, I know a lady that that uh, just happens to be lactating. Um, would you like that information? And she says, yes, um, take the boy and uh, nurse him until, it, until it's time to wean him and then bring him to me, All right? So Pharaoh's daughter knew too. I think, I think there's no way you, she didn't know that that was his mother, right? And so, so then um, a couple years later, or however long it took to wean, I don't know Egyptian plans on that, but uh, two, three years later, something like that, they bring Moses uh, to the Pharaoh's household. Now, here's the thing. We don't know, it doesn't say that Pharaoh's mother went with him. We don't know that. We do know his brothers and sisters didn't. Um, she might have and might have been the one that raised him. I kind of lean that way. I think that's the case. And the reason is because he knew all the Jewish stuff. Um, we're going to read the scripture where he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses didn't say, who are those guys? He knew who they were. And I think his mother raised him. But where was his dad? I don't think that his dad would have been allowed to come into to, uh, Pharaoh's kingdom as a, as a Hebrew male. Uh, I don't think that would have been allowed. So, so we don't know some of this stuff, but 
we do know that then as a, as a um, late teenager, early adult, he comes out one day and, and, and um, um, a Hebrew child is, is being, a Hebrew person is being abused by an Egyptian uh, slave driver, right? And uh, so Moses looks around. So in other words, premeditation. Moses looks around and, um, and he kills the Egyptian. And, and it appears at first glance, it appears that he does that because of his deep compassion for his own people. Now we do know that he does know that that's his people, at least that much, okay? Um, he realizes he's going to get in trouble. Pharaoh finds out, so he runs off into the wilderness, uh, gets married, and um, kind of starts uh, tending sheep and moving in with his father-in-law, Jethro. And, and Jethro, his father-in-law, is a priest. All this stuff is part of the history, right? So then this is where we come to this. He led the flocks far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to him, why, himself. Why isn't this bush burning, not burning up? I must go see it. And I think that would be the response of all of us, right? The bush is burning. You're like, I think I'm interested. Um, especially since it's not burning up. Right? When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. I think this is where it separates some of us. I think some people don't stand there. At that moment, they take off running. Right? Moses was interested. He's standing there. And now this voice is speaking to him from the bush, and he answers the voice, which I think is a little interesting. Do you, do you answer that? Do you look around thinking, am I imagining this? Am I crazy? Is somebody playing a trick on me? But he says, here am I. Don't come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. Now, this is something that the church does not do well with. For, for thousands of years, we do not do well with this. When God says to Moses, take off your sandals for this ground is holy ground, our natural instinct is the exact same thing that Peter does when Moses and Elijah come to the Mount of Transfiguration. Our natural instinct as human beings is to make a physical um, uh, moment out of a spiritual thing. We want to build an altar. We want to build a, a temple. We want to build a statue. We want to do something to, to deflect what the Holy Spirit is trying to do with us inside on a personal level. Because it's always easier to deal with physical representations of God than the Holy Spirit actually getting in and working on us. When God says, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground, Moses' responsibility is to recognize that the holiness of the moment is God there trying to talk to Moses. That's it. It's not just that God is there. It's that God is there to talk to Moses, and that's what makes the moment holy. If it was holy because of the bush being on fire or because this was a special place on the planet or something like that, which is what people do. They make places on the planet holy. They make statues holy. They do all kinds of things. Human nature naturally does that. Okay? If that was the case, if it was because of the bush or the moment or the space or whatever, then that bush would still be burning today. But the bush is not burning today. God stepped in the middle of that bush and lit it on fire to get Moses' attention. Because why? God's desire was to speak to Moses, not just show him he can burn bushes without burning them. He's trying to get Moses' attention. 
That's the only point of the fire for the bush. That's the only point of this being a holy moment is God was trying to speak to Moses. Guys, I really believe that there's a lot of times when there's a holiness of a moment because God is trying to speak to us and we miss it because we don't think God does that. We don't think God speaks to us or at least not regularly, but he's trying to. He's trying to always speak to us. That's one of the givens of this. He's trying to walk and talk with us at all times. But, <clears throat> but we put things into categories. And then when something happens that's holy or spiritual or whatever, I've watched this all my life and I've never understood it. We'll see some um, thing happening, a service, a special service somewhere on the planet. And it's, a, it's an amazing move of God. And so everybody goes there. I never understood that. Why don't you just get down on your knees and go there? He wants to speak to you. Well, but God is doing something. Scripture specifically says they chase all over looking for God. Instead of, God wants to speak to you right now. Let him do it. You don't have to go somewhere. Just take off your sandals. It's holy ground. He's right there and he's trying to speak to you. But how do we perceive that? It, so much information will determine whether or not we're going to let God speak to so much information from us. This was something, let me give you a little bit of background history, history here. And this may, um, there's a possibility this might irritate some of you, <clears throat> which is why I'm going to say it. No. <clears throat> no, this is, a, this is a real thing for me. I grew up in Pentecostal church. If you didn't grow up in Pentecostal church, this context will not make sense, but I'll explain it anyway. Okay. Um, when I grew up in Pentecostal churches, we had this thing called a Jericho March, right? Um, I, I always thought these were dumb, and this was the reason. The first thing is why. What is God doing with you during a Jericho March? And this is something that people, okay, so how many of you do not know what a Jericho March is? Okay, let me explain that then. That'll help. <clears throat> what happens, uh, you're having a great service, God is doing things, the Holy Spirit's moving, people are, Whatever you know, being healed, set free, all kinds of stuff. And we would have, specifically Sunday nights in Pentecostal church back in the day, you would have just powerful services where you'd go two or three hours. That was a normal thing on a Sunday night service. And, and sometimes the Holy Spirit's doing something, people are feeling like God's doing something. And so then all of a sudden somebody gets up and starts walking around and then people start following them like the, like the uh, conga dance thing, you know? Um, dun, 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 dun. Okay, you know, do you know what I'm talking about though, right? Everybody gets in a line and then everybody just walks around the building for like 30 minutes in a line. Inside the building, not outside because you don't want the walls to fall down. Inside the building. See, as a kid, I'm going, it's not very effective. The walls are still standing. But this is what I think. Now, I may be totally wrong about this. This is what I think most of the time was happening. The Holy Spirit was trying to do something with us, some big stuff, some, some legitimate stuff. Holy Spirit was trying to get past our, our walls and our issues. And there may be something like he was trying to get us to repent. See, when the Holy Spirit begins to move, there's always going to be two basic things that are going to be happening. Um, there are going to be other things, but these, those will be external. Those will be secondary. There's two basic things the Holy Spirit is always trying to do when he's moving. He's trying to get us to repent, and he's trying to empower us to witness. Those are the two things always. 
He's always wanting us to start with repentance. And then there's stuff, and then the end result is, now I'm going to witness to people. Okay? So here's some possibility. I'm just going to throw one idea out of what could possibly be happening. So-and-so sitting on the front row right here has been um, having a problem with so-and-so sitting back there, and they've been, they've been talking about each other and slamming each other and gossiping and mad and, and maybe even lying about each other and stuff like that. And God says to this person, you need to go back there and apologize to that person. And they have finally got to the point where the Holy Spirit is working and they're starting to submit and they stand up and they start that direction. But by the time they get back there, they don't want to do it anymore. Because on the way, so-and-so back there looked up at him and went, and it was over after that. And so they just kept walking and acting spiritual and everybody got in line with them acting spiritual. And now we're all walking around acting spiritual instead of letting the Holy Spirit work on you. This is an example of us taking a spiritual thing and turning it into a physical thing. Instead of letting the Holy Spirit work on you. Do some stuff. Change some stuff. I guess there could be a context somewhere where God, everybody is just so excited about what God is doing that they all just get up and walk in a line together around the inside of the building. I guess there could be a point for that. But I think most of the time, we're turning a spiritual thing that God is doing sovereignly inside of our gut, inside of our soul, inside of our spirit, and we turn it into something physical because we're scared to death to truly let go and let the Holy Spirit be in charge. Truly let him be in charge. Let him work on some stuff. Let him deal with some stuff. Let him convict us. Get on our face before him and don't get up until we are broken. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. I don't think that translates into a people train. I don't understand where we come up with this kind of stuff sometimes. Since I'm on the subject, this is one of the things I've never understood either. People falling down, standing up, falling down, standing up, falling down, standing up. I think it's the same thing. I think we're taking something spiritual the Holy Spirit potentially wants to do, and we turn it into something physical. We feel better about all the time and energy it takes to stand up and fall down and stand up and fall down when we're praying. We could be turning that energy into just get on your face before God and don't get up. Just don't get up. Just stay there until he breaks you wide open and you begin to repent of everything and pour, let the Holy Spirit pour through you with everything he wants to do instead of doing all the stuff. Guys, just get on our face and let God do something. God said, Moses, this is holy ground. Why? Because I want to talk to you. <clears throat> he says, verse 7, Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. Now, here's one that we need to do some processing. Moses came out early in his life and he killed an Egyptian because he was, an oppress he was oppressing a slave, a Hebrew slave. And if we're not careful, we say, well, that was the motivation for Moses. But I would say it could have been part of the motivation, but there's no way it could have been all of the motivation. Because when God says to Moses, Moses, I have heard their cries. I see their oppression. Now I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Moses begins to argue. 
And it takes four major arguments for God to get Moses' attention enough to send him. So where did that, that brokenness and that, that passion for his people go? God sees the oppression and hears their cries. And when he tells Moses about it, Moses doesn't care enough to be mobilized. So here's part of the deal with me, with, with the church in a general sense, is do we care about the things that God cares about? Are we truly moved by the things that hurts God? Or are we moved some because we're supposed to be in a spiritual sense? When do we really care about the, the brokenness, the slavery, the oppression? This is one of the things that have been driving me crazy the last few years, is we're revisiting all the slavery issues of America when we are not caring about slavery that is active around the world everywhere. We don't care about people in slavery around the world. That the kids are in sexual slavery all over the planet. That entire people groups are slaves to other people groups right now in the world. There is more slavery than ever in history. And we're digging up a hundred year old slavery here in America. That makes no sense. If slavery really is the issue and you care deeply about people being actively oppressed then get involved in some of the places around the world that people are actively being oppressed. Not being talked about, it happened 100 years ago. When do we get our minds right about stuff? We're being played. We're being played by people. And we just keep doing it. Moses was not concerned about the oppression of his people as much as a murder should have, have legitimized it. So there were other issues, and I think some was he was a he was the the, the big bad uh, Hebrew Egyptian that had been trained and developed and all this other stuff, and he was going to be the rescuer of his people, and they were going to look at him as some kind of demigod. That's what I think was going on when he murdered the Egyptian. He wanted to be the big bad man to come save the day, and everybody was just going to fall down in front of him. And the next day, when they said, "Are you going to kill us too?" scared him to death. If he was really holding for a cause, that wouldn't have scared him out of the country, right? Four times he argues, verse 11, Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Well, here's the answer. I know this is a very, diff this is a very big answer for a very difficult question. I understand that. I've been where Moses is, where God is trying to tell you something and you're arguing. I get that. And here's the thing is, the fact that God speaks to him out of a burning bush, and, and there was other miracles that already happened. He told Moses to throw his stick down and it turned into a snake. That should be enough. You'd be like, I don't, I've never met anybody else who can do that. And then he says, Moses, reach down and pick it up. That's when my wife would have said, I'm no longer available for you, God. <laughs> Reaches down and picks up the tail of the snake, turns back into a stick. Puts his hand in his coat, comes out leprosy. Puts it back in, it's clean. All these different things that God is doing, and Moses is still concerned. He says, I don't, how, how, what makes you think I can be this guy? Well, here's the thing. When God takes time out of running the universe to come into a little burning bush, set it on fire but not burn it up, and then talk to you out of that bush, he might have already taken into consideration who you are. 
He might have already taken into consideration your weaknesses and your strengths, and he still has enough confidence in you. Right? So the answer is what? How do I, how can I, how can I be the person to fear before, appear before Pharaoh? Because you said I am God. Not because I think I am, but because you said I am. And if you say I am, then I can do it. Even if I don't think I can, I can because you said I can. You took a lot of stuff to get to this moment. So I'm just going to go with this. But he still argues. He argues four major times. God answers, I'll be with you. And this is your sign that I'm the one who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask, what is his name? And what should I tell him? That's a dumb question too, in my opinion. Every, you could say it's the guy that talked to me out of the burning bush, and that should have been enough. And then if that didn't work, take your staff and throw it down since God makes snakes out of staffs. That's a good one too. And then God has the most defining thing said about him in Scripture. The most defining thing said about anybody ever in history. God says it about himself, but it's going to sound stupid when Moses goes and tells Pharaoh. Is who do you, who do I, who do I tell them you are? And he says, "Tell them I am the I am." And we go, "Wow, that's pretty definitive." In the most overgeneralizing, undefinitive way, that is extremely definitive of who God is. But then, now try to be Moses explaining that to Pharaoh. He he says he's the I am. Who does? I am. You say it? No. I am said it. Sounds stupid. But it is the most definitive thing God could have ever said. Because he is. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 4. Moses pleaded with the Lord, still arguing. Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been and I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Most theologians would say that that means he stuttered. That's the way the language appears to be, is that he stuttered. Now here's something to process. Um, mental health studies for years and years, decades now, have come to the conclusion that when somebody stutters, it's because something has happened to them in the past. It's not, it's not a speech issue. It's somebody has done something to them. Somebody has hurt them or harmed them or something. It's not, a, it's not a speech issue. It becomes a speech issue, but that's not where it starts. Now, why? Let's, let's assume that's true. That may not be true. I think it is. I believe that. But let's just assume that that's the case. When did that happen for Moses? And, and by the way, I don't have an answer for this. I'm just saying, why does he stutter? Because that kind of thing also contributes greatly to him feeling very insecure about this moment. God, I, you can't use me. Do you know who I am? I've got nothing that you can use here, God. And God is saying, you are exactly who I want. And you have everything I need. And, and here's another one. It's not like, when he, see, if I'm God, this is where I, there's so many opportunities for God to make jokes that he doesn't. But Moses says to me, I'm God, and he says, I, I stutter. And if I'm God, I go, what? 
I did not know that. Because <laughs> here's the reality. God knew everything about Moses, but he still chose him. In fact, that's probably not even the right way to say it. Knowing everything about him, God chose him. The same thing he does with us. He knows everything about you. Strengths, weaknesses, he knows everything, and he chooses you. And he's trying to do that every day. He's trying to choose you. We push back with this. And then, and then the very last sentence, verse 13, but Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anyone else, anybody else. That is a powerful statement of faith, is it not? God, send anybody. We know some of the things that Pharaoh dealt with. I've already mentioned some of those. Very educated, probably didn't have a very close relationship with Pharaoh, though. That wouldn't have been normal or expected at the time, but very educated, knew everything. Most educated scientist probably in, in the culture. All the stuff. So many things. N not having his family around, but maybe having his mom. His mom, obviously a strong personality. I mean, there was a bunch of things that makes Moses Moses. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I'm, I'm sorry, let me back up before I read this. Here's what we've got to get to. We've got to start asking ourselves, this is the first part of this. We've got to ask ourselves difficult questions. Guys, this is what we don't do well. Ask ourselves difficult questions. Things that get under our skin. Here's some of these. Why do I get passionate about? It doesn't matter what the issue is. Why do I get passionate about that and somebody else doesn't? And the same thing is, why does somebody else get passionate about something and I don't? Right? This has always been my confusion with the body of Christ when it comes to abortion. Why do some Christians just not care? I don't understand that. God's pretty passionate about that. When somebody reaches into the womb and tears a human baby apart piece by piece while that baby is alive... God's pretty serious about it. So then when, and I know people say, well, that's a political issue. When I get upset because then you've got evangelicals that are pro-abortion. I, I, I get so mad at that because I struggle with you being a Christian if you are okay with abortion. And then to be ministers, pastors, leaders in the evangelical world, and you're okay with them dismembering little babies, torn apart, while they're alive, I, I struggle with that. Why are we passionate about some things? Why are we not passionate about some things? You've got to ask that. What am I passionate about is the first question, but then the next question needs to be why. And by the way, that takes a lot longer to answer than the first one. Why? What do I like or dislike? What do I naturally like or dislike? You, you can use anything, just pick a food thing or a relational thing or just, just pick anything. I, I was joking with my daughter a few weeks back. She'd gone out on a few dates with this guy and, and she didn't necessarily like the guy. And so she was calling me and she's like, I just need to tell him I don't want to continue this or whatever. I was like, okay, then just tell him that. And it was like hours of conversation about that. And I'm like, just say, dude, I'm not into you. It's not that hard. But she was so emoting on all of this. <clears throat> and so I was trying to come, and our whole family was trying to help her. This is how you say this nicely to this guy. And we come up with all these stories, and I'm like, oh my goodness, he's going to be confused. He, it's going to sound like you want to marry him, but not right now. 
And, and so I finally, you know, finally she does it, and on the way home, she calls me. She says, Dad, I'm so upset. And I said, what you need to do is just get a big old pint of ice cream and just bury your soul <laughs> in that ice cream. She's like, Dad, that is so cliche and stupid. And I was like, I know, that's why I said it. But it still makes you feel good, doesn't it? For some people, it's shopping. You know, shopping makes you feel good. To me, all-you-can-eat buffet will wash away most things in my life. Why do I like what I like and why do I dislike? And by the way, what I just said is actually a key to me. I overeat a lot. I am bearing my soul. I, <laughs> I overeat a lot. You know, that's actually a problem. That comes from things. I've analyzed it. I know where it comes from. I try to work on it sometimes. <laughs> Why do I like what I like? What are some things about me that need to change? Guys, if we never go to this place, we're always going to stay where we are. And the Holy Spirit doesn't want anybody to stay where you are right now. He wants you to be moving forward, more like Christ. What about to me self-destructive? It doesn't mean you are a self-destructive person. I've met those kind of people. But there are things that we do that are self-destructive. What are they? How do I see God? Ask yourself, write down like 10 things. This is the way I see God. 10 uh, characteristics of God. That little list will help you analyze who God is in your life, how you perceive him. These are, this will help you in your relationship with God. How do I think God looks at me? Write down from God's perspective the scriptures about you. Write those down and see how you think God thinks about you. And here's an interesting for a married couple. Don't do, don't do it in the same room, but both of you do the same thing at the same time, but do it in different places so you're not looking at each other's list and come back together and discuss that. You'd be amazed at how you see God differently and how you think God sees you differently. And then if you just really want to cause a big problem, how do you think God sees your spouse? <laughs> Write that list down. Does God want to use me? How do you think about that? The answer is yes, but you may not think so. If you don't think so, ask yourself why. If you do think so, then ask yourself how. Once you get to the how, then ask yourself why. How does God look at sin? How does God look at sin in others and in me? Because that's going to be different. Whether you want to go there or not, it will be different. And I could prove that by just start naming some sins right now. Naming some stuff. And... and You'll, you would admit they were sins, but not that big of a deal for you, right? Exodus 20 now, verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or in the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for other gods, will not tolerate your affection from other gods. How do you perceive that sentence? And how do you perceive it in relationship to you? I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. God holds people accountable and even holds their children and their children's children, children's children accountable. Do we believe that anymore or do we not? Think about this. Cultures change a lot of the ways that we look at God. Look at scripture, but cultures changed it, not God. 
How do you perceive that? Then he, then he says the next sentence. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Can you believe that? Now, some of you are going, well, everybody can believe that. No, for some people, it's easier to believe that he will punish you for generations than he will love you for more. Different people are different in this room right here. Can you see God as being both of those? Because he just says he is. That's, it's not as necessarily, once you arrive at, well, this is the way I think. Yes, he does this or yes, or can he be both? Yes, whatever. Once you arrive at that, that's only half the subject. The next half of the subject is why do I believe that? It's not just the what, it's the why. That will help you unpack some of the issues in your life. Do I believe he's only one of those? Okay, why? I believe he's only judgment. Do I believe he's only love? Why? As we've got to start asking ourselves some of these questions. The second thing is process the answers. Not how do I fix this, but why this is happening. Not how do I fix this thought process, but why do I need to fix it? Why do I think this way? Why do I think this about sin or lack of sin? Why do I think this about God's word? Why do I think this about God? It's not just the what. It's processing it and saying, why do I think about this? Guys, I know I'm saying stuff that, that takes, for me personally, it's taken decades to process this stuff. When, as a young man, I did not think about this. I only thought one direction linearly. I did not think that I'm a collection of stuff. I didn't think that way. I thought I'm just making decisions, I'm doing my life. And then I realized the reason I'm even making most of these decisions is because who I was. Not in an excuse kind of way. I don't, I don't believe that everything wrong with me, I blame on my mama. That is not the case. I, I think those are contributing factors, but for me to make decisions, I gotta make them now. But it's helpful for me to understand why do I feel this way? Why do I think this needs to happen or this needs to happen? Why? And then the third part of this is God, give me a plan to change the way I think. I'm gonna go back to Romans chapter 12. I'm just gonna read verse two. Don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Not the way you do things, not what you do, but change the way you think because that determines everything you do. Change the way you think. Why don't you stand with me? <clears throat> So we're going to unpack this over the next few weeks. And here's something that I know, okay? I don't know details. That's not what I'm about to say. But I do know this. What we are about to pray for, what you are about to pray for, not what I'm about to pray for, what you are about to pray for, the Holy Spirit's already putting in your mind your spirit, or you should be praying for, because I guarantee you, as I'm speaking about this this morning, the Holy Spirit had already prepared you all week long for this. You just didn't know it until I began to speak. Guys, I know the Holy Spirit well enough to know he's already got stuff in your head. He's already got stuff in your existence. Now we got to say, am I going to deal with this or not? And we're going to do this for the next few weeks. Am I going to deal with this or am I not going to deal with this? Holy Spirit's already working on something. He's already convicting you. He's already helping you process some things that need to change. Don't, don't sidestep. Don't Jericho march on me, okay? Let the Holy Spirit hit you straight on and begin to pray and be convicted and just work through this. doesn't mean you're going to get all the answers today, 
But I'm also praying, and I'm going to pray this, that through this week, that as you come to moments, God's going to remind you of this, and it's going to be little revelatory moments, little epiphanies along the way this week, where you can say, yeah, I, I think I need to work on something. You need to pray about good and bad, good and bad. Okay, Lord, we, we submit ourselves to you. God, I need you. I need you. I, I just need you more than anything. Lord, I need you to get in my mind and in my spirit. Lord, I need you to change me. God, I know every person in this room, they need you to change them. God, some easy things and some difficult things. Lord, we need you to change us. Do the stuff in our life that you, you've got planned for a long time. We may be avoiding, sidestepping, maybe not even aware yet. But Jesus, do some stuff. Change us. Change our thinking. Change our worldview. Change how we process information. God, change how we think about you. Change how we think about ourselves. Lord, and bring us into wholeness and healthiness in you. In Jesus' name. Lord, help us not to run away from it, sidestep it. Lord, really let you deal with issues, relational issues, mental issues, emotional issues. God, help us to deal with this stuff. And Lord, I know that you will take us down this road at the pace that we can handle. I trust that. Lord, I ask you to give us a confidence in our spirit that what you're trying to do is best for us. In the name of Jesus. And God, I do pray this week that you bring this up to us constantly through the week. Things that make us feel comfortable, things that make us feel angry, things that makes us feel sad happy, nostalgic. Lord, use those as moments to reveal to us a little bit more about us and a whole lot more about you. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, how many of you will be willing? This is almost a, a trap. How many of you will be willing to say, Lord, whatever you want to do, I want to go there. I want to go there. I know it may not be easy. Some may be, but Lord, I want to go there. Guys, just, just open your spirit up to whatever he's trying to do and let him speak to you. Before noon tomorrow, God's going to give you a chance to let somebody know Jesus loves them. How big he is, how amazing he is, and how much he loves them. Take the chance, tell them, and God will do some really big stuff in your world. It's a guarantee. So, take somebody's hand. Look them right in the eyes and realize they're just as messed up as you. And uh, we'll see you Wednesday night. Have a great rest of your week.